This is Kyle Kensing, thanking you for tuning in to the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast. And college football season is gone. It's it's unbelievably sad feeling. Uh, the past three weeks since the BCS championship game has felt like a lifetime. It sort of feels like the entire length of this past 2011 season. If you are experiencing the same withdrawals that I am, then you're looking for something to fill the void, anything to fill the void. And uh, fortunately, we got Aaron Torres. He's going to come on and talk to us a little bit about what you can do in these next few months to help you with those college football blues that I know you're experiencing. So uh, glad to have Aaron on. He's a past guest of the, of the program. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit of the Big East football changes. Uh, today we had the false start. Mario Cristobal was taking the Rutgers job and then wasn't taking the Rutgers job and We'll delve into that situation a little bit, get an interesting perspective from an East Coaster, and uh, Aaron also is going to talk about his book about the 2011 UConn basketball team, so looking forward to that, and without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Torres joining the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast. And joining us here on the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast, Aaron Torres, the manager, one of the managers of CrystalBallRun.com, as well as Aaron Torres-Sports.com. That's A-A-R-O-N-T-O-R-R-E-S-Sports.com. And of course, on Twitter, uh, Aaron, Aaron Torres. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. Welcome back. Well, I appreciate you having me. That was a, a nice, hearty introduction, completely unnecessary, but I do appreciate it. Well, of course, uh, like I said, one of my favorite, uh, two of my favorite websites to check out on the entire blogosphere, and uh, glad to have you back on the podcast, and it seems like an appropriate time with some change going on in the Big East, and you being out there in Big East country, is today we had a bit of a false start with the uh, Rutgers and their coaching search to replace Greg Schiano, the Basically, the entire identity of Rutgers football throughout its entire history, given the success that that program's had, is almost exclusively within the last half decade or so. And Mario Cristobal of FIU sounded like a done deal and didn't end up happening. So what's going on there on the East Coast, as far as you can tell, with the RU football? Well, it looks like, uh, you know, I don't really know exactly why Mario Cristobal said no. You know, he gave the company line of, you know, FIU is where I want to be. You know, I, I don't know that FIU is where anybody wants to be, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. But, um, you know, you know, we all know Rutgers has some problems with their kind of their finances and stuff like that. So Rutgers ended up going with this guy, uh, Kyle Flood, uh, the offensive line coach, was the interim coach. You know, it's tough because y- y- it's – Rutgers is actually probably a little bit of a better job than people realize. The finances aren't great, but the recruiting is so good, and the facilities are probably pretty much right on line with the Big East that, you know, it, it, it would be a nice job if you had time to really conduct a national coaching search. Now, they didn't have time for that because it's National Signing Day and because they actually have put together a very nice uh, recruiting uh, recruiting class, excuse me. Most of the top players in Jersey have committed to Rutgers. Actually, uh, the top player in New Jersey is choosing between Rutgers, Miami, and Florida tomorrow. So, you know, it's always a tough thing, especially you know this close to signing day. You know, do you do you mortgage the short term for the instability of not having somebody in place for signing day? That's tough. 
or do you, do you mortgage potentially the long term by not doing your due diligence? I think it was the right move for Rutgers. You have to move fast. You have to salvage this recruiting class. You can't blame any 18-year-old kid for not wanting to sign at a school where they don't know who the head coach is. And, you know, I don't, you know nobody knows really how serious, how serious Cristobal was at, uh, at taking this job. And, and I think that it's the right move for Rutgers. You know, only time will tell if, if this guy, Kyle Flood, can actually coach but from strictly just kind of a, a, a necessary, uh, you know, a necessary getting getting a guy in right now, it seems like the right move. What's interesting about them staying in-house and with the Shiano hire, too, to me, is uh, you mentioned the great recruiting class that they've got coming. And uh, I know Jeff Happily has been a big part of that. And sort of keeping that same staff in line, do you think that's really going to help them kind of keep the same direction that Greg Shiano's had him the same arc bowl games every year, uh, six of the last seven, I believe, that Shiano's had them on. Yeah, you know, and as the Big East continues to remain, uh, you know, highly unstable, I think that this is definitely a program where as long as you keep recruiting well, as long as you keep most of or a lot of the elite athletes in New Jersey coming to Rutgers or at least interested in Rutgers talking about Rutgers, I think you're going to do enough to get to that 7-8 win threshold and go to a bowl game. You know, I think that with the right guy in that school, in this current system, or in this current situation with the Big East, I think that Rutgers could be a real national player, you know, more than just kind of a one-year, one-hit wonder like they were in 2006. I thought Shiano was a bit overrated as an actual game day head coach, but it's like I said, you can't you can't blame the school for rolling the dice on Kyle Flood, who has, as far as I know, no previous head coaching experience anywhere before, because you just you have to salvage it. And I do think that if he can keep most of that staff intact, if he can, um, you know, uh, you know, keep the recruiting class intact, and I know that two of their more high-profile commitments reconfirm their uh, allegiance to Rutgers tonight. Uh, we're taping this on a Monday night. Uh, you know, I think they can continue that. You know, can they go to that next level with a first-time head coach that really wasn't a candidate anywhere else? That I don't know. That's something that really only time is going to tell. Now, you cover Connecticut very closely, and last year they had a similar situation with Randy Edsall taking the Maryland job pretty late in the coaching carousel. And obviously Edsall was sort of the face of the program in the same fashion, even more so than Shiano. And... Now UConn with Paul Pascaloni, a guy who's very well tenured in the Big East, having coached at Syracuse throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s. But taking away his experience, now basically you have where Charlie Strong at Louisville and Doug Marone at Syracuse are the two most experienced guys in the conference with, I believe, seven years between them. All this coaching change, I mean, what does this make the landscape of a conference that's basically completely changing its entire foundation yeah and it you know it sucks and you know i've talked to other writers and bloggers about this is that it just seems like when anything starts to go right for for any big east football program you know all hell breaks loose and uh you know i would defer you to uh you know our friend mark ennis who runs the big east coast bias blog but it's something crazy where i think that we're at the point now where um you know something crazy like of the last 
seven Big East champions, like none of them still have their current head coach, maybe up until this year. Or, or I take that back, their current head coach is not the same guy who won the Big East championship. You know the names, Bobby Petrino at Louisville, Brian Kelly, and uh, Mark D'Antonio at uh, Cincinnati, Rich Rodriguez at West Virginia, uh, Randy Edsel at UConn. So, it, you know, it's just tough. It's just tough. I think that, you know, the Big East takes a little bit of an unfair kind of, uh, you know, uh, punch on the chin but, you know, it's tough because the, the, the conference is seen as a stepping stone job for a lot of these guys. Now, I think that if, if there was more stability within the conference, that might mean that some guys stick around. You know, I think that at some point, Charlie Strong is going to have a really tough decision to make, whether it's a, a, an SEC school or a prominent ACC school, uh, maybe uh, one, one of the schools as far west as Texas. But, you know, the, the problem with, with the Big East is that most of these coaches – whether they inadvertently plan to or not, it becomes a stepping stone job. And what I've always found interesting is the idea that the schools that were at one point mid-majors, and some of them have since elevated themselves to AQ statuses, like a Utah, like a BYU, like a TCU, those schools have been able to retain coaches. You know, Kyle Whittingham has been at Utah for seven years, kind of saw them through that transition from Urban Meyer in the Mountain West to now the Pac-12. Gary Patterson stuck with TCU through all the you know Conference USA stuff into the Mountain West, and now they're going to the Big 12. And it's like the Big East just can't keep those coaches for whatever reason. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't think anybody knows what the answer is. But I just find it weird that a TCU is able to hold on to their coach. A Boise is able to hold on to their coach. BYU, Utah, these are programs that are non-traditional programs, yet a pit – uh, you know, a West Virginia, a Louisville, uh, in some cases, schools that have much more resources are not able to hold on to their coaches. Why, I don't know. But until you get some stability, it's like anything else. Until you have some stability, uh, it's going to be tough to keep these coaches. I mean, I think that it's, it's, it's starting to change. I know Paul Pasqualoni is going to be at UConn as long as they want him there. Doug Maroney is going to be at Syracuse as long as they want him there. Now, granted, Syracuse is going to the ACC eventually, but you know the point being that they do seem to have some coaches who finally seem like they want to be. You know, the Big East is their destination job rather than a stepping stone. And I think until more schools kind of have that kind of, I don't know about attitude is the right word, but until more schools are able to get coaches with that mindset, it's just going to continue to be this way, unfortunately. Now, in Big East basketball, you've got a completely opposite mindset where the Big East football, obviously, you mentioned some of the upheaval, the shakeups that go on there on a relatively routine basis. Basketball Big East is sort of, it's the king, I would say, right now. Uh, even the ACC hasn't been able to touch it in recent years. And you being somebody who closely follows Connecticut actually uh, just released a book, and I wanted to get some of your perspective on that especially this time of year, as uh, those of us going through football withdrawal uh, deal with ways to, to consume the massive amounts of free time we now have. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the book and, uh, and, and your experiences with Connecticut Hoops? Well, yeah, sure, man. I appreciate it, and I, you know, I hope that your listeners uh, enjoy college basketball as much as I know that you and I do. Um, you know, to make this really kind of as short as I can, uh, you mentioned earlier, I live in Big East country. I am a UConn alumnus. I still live in Connecticut. Uh, actually, I, I still live in Connecticut for reasons only known to me, and I'm not even sure why I still do, to be perfectly honest. But uh, but uh, the truth is, I'm alumnus. I love the school. Last year's national championship team 
was a kind of kind of one of those teams that, um, you know, as a fan, it was just so easy to rally behind them. They were for the first time in a long time as a UConn fan, they were really kind of the heavy underdogs. They were the team that people didn't think were talented enough. They had a lot of guys that were overlooked in recruiting. They had Kemba Walker, who was kind of this this pint-sized, you know, superstar that was relatable because, hey, you know, I probably don't have very much in common with a six foot eleven center who's going to be in the NBA in a year, but Kemba Walker, you know, that's a guy that I could have been if things had broken differently. So, anyways, long story short, it was a great season. The national championship run at the end, you know, the Big East tournament to start five wins in five, uh, five wins in five days, followed up by the six wins in the NCAA tournament. That's probably something that we're never going to see again. Certainly not with the quality of competition that uh, the Big East, uh, you know, that the Big East uh, was last year with eleven teams getting into the NCAA tournament. It really is a story that's more than just basketball. I've said this, and I do believe it. This is a story that you don't have to be a UConn basketball fan to appreciate. I mean, it certainly would help, but you know, it's it's a story of a team that is just you know, it's it's one of those teams that we all as fans want to have the opportunity to root for once or twice in our lives, where um, you know the underdog feel good, never give up story, and I felt like it needed to be put into a book. Um, got back, I went to I, you know I went to the Final Four as a fan last year. Decided, you know what. Somebody needs to write about a book. Somebody needs to write a book about this team. Why can't it be me? Started doing the research, started making phone calls, all that stuff, and one thing kind of led to another. Uh, and I got it out right before Christmas. The response has been great, especially in Connecticut. People have really embraced it. Um, you know, the people that enjoy my writing, kind of on a national level, a lot of them have been nice enough to purchase it, even though the subject matter doesn't necessarily correlate to exactly what they're interested in. But they they have given you know they have responded really well to it as well. So uh, I don't even think I've mentioned the book is called The Unlikeliest Champion. Uh, there's lots of good information at UConnBook.com. And uh, it's also available on Amazon and all that stuff. But it's been a great experience and, uh, you know, something that I, I've really enjoyed the process of over the past few months. Now, is there anybody that you like in this year's tournament to kind of emerge as the UConn, maybe a team that comes in somewhere in the middle of the pack in their conference and makes a run at the Final Four? <laughs> well, I could go with the completely homeristic answer and say that um, UConn could be this <laughs> year's UConn because uh, – because they, they have struggled not much different than last year's team struggled at this point in the year. I don't think it's going to happen this year. Uh, they just There's just something that's just not right with that team. So um, as far as other teams, you know, it's a good question. Truth be told, with, with the amount uh, of just responsibility I've had with the book, I haven't had as much time to watch as much uh, you know, as much college hoops as I normally would. Um, you know, I think some of those teams in the Big East uh, could make runs. You know, Georgetown, I know, is ranked, like, in the top 15 right now. But they're kind of – they remind me of UConn in the sense of they lost a bunch of players off last year's team and everyone thought they were going to be terrible and they're young and they're inexperienced and what are they going to do without all, you know, the three or four seniors that graduate off the team. But their chemistry is better. They play harder. So they remind me a lot of UConn in that way. And then other Otherwise, I just think that this year in college basketball, the top teams are so much better than they were last year, whether it's Kentucky, Baylor, Carolina, Syracuse, whoever. I just think it's going to be really hard for anybody to have to go through two or three of those teams on the way to the title game. And, you know, you can say what you want about UConn's run last year, but they didn't play a number one seed in the entire tournament. I don't believe they played 
a number two seed either. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. They were a three. Yeah, so they played San Diego State. Diego so I State. take that back. Yep, yep, yep. So, but, you know, they, they did avoid kind of those heavyweights, the Kansases and the Ohio States and stuff like that. I just think this year's college basketball, kind of the top is much better. I think it's going to be tough for anybody to, to come out as a four, five, six seed and really make a deep run like last year. Well, college basketball, as you mentioned, something you and I love. And, and for me, it's it was actually my number one thing until about my late teens. And then I got more and more into football to the, to the point that I'm at now. And I'm one of the people who is just an absolute junkie for it to the point now where National Signing Day has become like a, a, a mini holiday. And, of course, we got that coming up on Wednesday. And uh, you had a good article up on uh, the flood of decommitments that are rolling in before the commitments uh, over on crystalballrun.com today. And uh, we've seen National Signing Day really sort of evolve in the last five years where it's become a big spectacle. What are some of your thoughts on just the whole National Signing Day process as far as actually an event as well as just the whole recruiting spectacle in general? You know, it's a good question, and I think I actually have, um, you know, some relatively interesting perspective, and I'll tell you why. Um, I was very lucky a few weekends ago to – I was invited down to actually the University of Kentucky for a basketball game. I met one of their writers when he was in Connecticut, um, and he said, come down to Rupp Arena, you got to experience this. So I get down there, and the weekend that I happen to be there, uh, Kentucky basketball, not football now, we're talking basketball, got a commitment from a Kentucky kid. I have, to, I have to cut you off for one second. There's, there's a football team at Kentucky? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, you know, I've never actually seen them on TV, (laughs) but I'm told that they play every Saturday and stuff, and, like, they have a stadium and fans and uniforms and everything, um, (laughs) so, actually, I actually met Joker Phillips, the football coach while I was down there, he couldn't have been a nicer guy, I feel bad, because he basically has, I would argue, maybe the toughest job in all of college football, and, uh, the fans think that he should win seven or eight or nine games every year, and it's just not gonna happen, but... Anyways, so to what I was saying was, uh, you know, Kentucky basketball got a commitment from a Kentucky kid. He's a junior now, and I was lucky enough to go to his press conference. And the thing that I took away was, like, I think that sometimes we forget, um, you know, that these are 16 and 17 and 18-year-old kids. And, I, you know, it was so shocking to me. Like, I was at the press conference, and I really felt like, the fans that were there, the students that were there, maybe the kid's parents or his family were actually more excited about the announcement than he was. Like he was, um, he, he had, it was very weird. He didn't really have much emotion. He wasn't excited. He wasn't nervous. He wasn't anxious. He didn't seem relieved. And it just struck me as, you know, why are we doing this now? And, and that, to me, is the bigger thing. Like, if a kid, you know, I think, like, famously, like, Isaiah Crowell last year, you know, had a big press conference, and he seemed to really enjoy that moment. And, you know, actually, that may end up being the highlight of his entire Georgia career was the press conference where he announced his, uh, <laughs> his a commitment. But, you know, if a kid really, if that's what it's about, you know, and they really want to enjoy themselves. Hey, I say do it. I think it's no different than when you and I were going to college and we made our decisions and our parents took us out to celebrate a dinner. You know, this is a public thing. You should be proud of yourself. You worked hard. And if this is what you want for yourself, then I think you should do it. The problem is I think too many kids 
feel like they have to do it. And that was the takeaway that I had at this press conference the other day, which was just if a kid wants it, that's fine. But I, I, I just hope that in these communities and in these high schools, these kids don't feel the pressure to have to have to have to have a press conference. And I feel like probably, you know, it goes back to all the problems that we talk about with recruiting, you know, 365 days a year, whether it's football or basketball in that, you know, sometimes the kid almost gets lost in the shuffle. So that's kind of my stance on it. I mean, if a kid wants to have a press conference, I have no problem with it. I enjoy signing day like you do. I'm the same way as you are. I used to be a huge Hoops fan, and I've kind of gravitated towards football. I think signing day is a fun thing. I think it's an entertaining thing. Um, but I just I just hope that kind of in situations like the one I mentioned that, you know, people use some perspective and really kind of do what the kid wants as opposed to what the adults want, you know? Absolutely, yeah, and I really do like seeing the the press conferences, especially when the kid does seem exuberant about it. I I think you can go about it the wrong way. I feel like what Jimmy Clausen did in 06 was maybe set himself up, and that was a decision that an 18-year-old makes. You know, if I had been a good, if I had been a good athlete at 18, I probably would have parachuted down to my press conference and danced in hammer pants, but, you know, you set yourself up for failure, I feel like, when you make too big of a spectacle. But something like Crowell last year with the, and I'm a dog lover, so that really, uh, I became an instant fan of his when he pulled out the the white bulldog puppy. But uh, stuff like. I was going to say, too, with the Jimmy Clausen thing, not only sets you up for failure, it sets you up to kind of not be liked. You know what I mean? And it's like there was a certain segment of college football that no matter what Jimmy Clausen did at Notre Dame was never going to like him. And. You know, again, those were probably decisions that he made, like you just said. But I, I don't know. I think, I think, like you said, it, it can go too far sometimes. And I think, like you said, not only just set it, set him up for failure, but just set him up to kind of be the villain. And you know, I, I don't know. I don't think that an eighteen-year-old kind of thinks like that in the broader picture sometimes. And I think you make a really good point too. I mean, when you mention that these are seventeen, eighteen-year-old kids. And, you know, they are still kids. I, I think about how much I grew from my freshman year of college to the time I graduated. And there is such a huge maturation process. And I know you guys at Crystal Ball Run have been big advocates of the uh, don't tweet recruits movement. And uh, that's definitely a big thing that, uh, that I know a lot of us on the blogosphere are trying to emphasize. Just leaving kids alone on Facebook, leaving them alone on Twitter. You know, there's nothing I hate more than seeing an athlete tweet. You know, man, I I'm glad I didn't pick. Let's just say, for argument's sake, Alabama. Because if I drop the pass and I'm getting all this crap now, imagine what it's going to be like if I, you know, miss a pass in the fourth quarter of an SEC game. Do you remember last year with Cyrus Quanjo, who was the number one recruit in the country, and he committed to Auburn like that day, and you know he kind of changed his commitment later on, but it was like. For three or four days, he was getting, you know, nasty threats and Facebook messages and stuff from Alabama fans. And then he decommitted from Auburn and got that same stuff from Auburn fans. And I think we do need to keep some perspective that, yeah, I just that's the part that bothers me, I think. And I think you're right to bring that up is just that that these that. This is supposed to be a celebration, and it's not about you, you know, guy in jean shorts in Alabama. Like, I'm <laughs> sorry, it's just not. You know what I mean? And, like, like if a kid shoots, you know, I, I find it really ironic that the fans are almost, like, more invested than 
I don't want to say they're more invested than the coaches and stuff, but like, you know, I was skimming through all these random recruiting articles this morning and one kid decommitted from a certain school and he called the school that he decommitted from and he said the coaches handled it with class. They understood that this was a decision that I had to make and they moved on to the next guy. And it's like, why can't fans do the same thing, you know? And so it, it has taken on this kind of weird this weird kind of subculture kind of in the Twitter message board world that we live in where now, like, like you said, it just, you know, the kids become villains and, you know, some of it, like I said, with Jimmy Clausen, he probably had it coming to him. You can't do what he did, but a kid like Cyrus Quanjo, you know, I saw that commitment live. And even when he made it, it was like, he wasn't really sure that that's what he wanted. And, you know, as a, a, a person who feels the same way that you do about my college experience, you know, I only want every kid to have the same college experience I did and grow as much as I did. And it's just a shame that, you know, certain, you know, fans are making it into something that it's that it's that it shouldn't be, you know. Absolutely. And I think that's the, the biggest thing to, to really emphasize on, on National Signing Day is this should be an exciting day. It should be a fun day. And I, I emphasize that it should be fun. I mean, quite frankly, you know, there's no sense in getting worked up over four or five star recruits because even though they do turn out to be the best players by percentage wise down the road, I was doing some, uh, some studies for, uh, for a post that's going to be up on Saturday Blitz tomorrow. For instance, the class four years ago, that was number five in the nation was Miami and they went six and six this season. So, I mean, you can't judge a recruiting class until four years later, and I think that's a key thing people really need to take away from from Wednesday. Yeah, no, and the, and that's exactly, and that's what I was going to say is that you know just because you win on signing day doesn't mean you're going to have success. And I mean, I don't really know how much that correlates to why the fans behave a certain way, but you know, Ron Zook had a lot of good days on the recruiting trail, <laughs> and not nearly as many on Saturdays. You know, and I just think, I just think it's like like I said, I think it's just fun. It's just fun to kind of project and be like, okay, you know, this guy can step in and play right away and feel like, you know, that you know a little bit about these guys once they do get on campus where it's not like it was maybe six or seven years ago before the internet really was the way it was. And, you know, these, all these, you know, there was 12 hours of coverage on ESPNU or whatever. Like, you know, I kind of like the fact that I can watch, um, you know, Manti Teo's press conference or, um, you know, I'm trying to think of who I've seen the last few years, but, and have that association like, oh, I remember when that kid picked Notre Dame, you know, he seemed like a good kid. I wish him luck. But, you know, it, it, but again, it does get into the other stuff that we've been talking about. So. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I feel like it's become such a huge thing is we're a month from the BCS championship. We're about two months from spring football. So right now this is, this is it until, uh, until springtime. And there's so much time to fill. So much stuff that, you know, we could be doing to be productive, go out for a hike, go play in the snow if you live in the Northeast. We don't all live in California here, my friend. Yeah, exactly. I, I had to restrain myself. It was, it was 72 in, in San Diego today, so I have to bear in mind that we have listeners that are in other locations. So uh, if you're, if you're uh, playing in the snow or, well, okay. Maybe I don't feel so bad about advocating TV watching now because I do think about I can't go outside when it's 50. And so I can't even I can't even imagine for the folks that are living where it's 20 degrees right now. So with football season past, all that spare time, what is on Aaron Torres's DVR right now? Oh boy, you know that's a great question. I have I'm so behind on everything TV related 
because of the book, because of the dual blogs that I like to take part in, I just haven't had as much time to watch TV. And like, I, I, I will be honest, you know, we talked about Jersey Shore last time. I am also a proponent of the Kardashian family. I know that uh, about 80% of your listeners just threw their <laughs> threw their computers across the room and are going to unfollow me on Twitter and defriend me on Facebook and uh, send hate, you know, send, you know, recruiting-ish hate mail to my house uh, after I just said that. But I find them very entertaining. I did miss last weekend's uh, series or series season's finale of, uh, you know, when Kim and, and Chris uh, Humphreys, unfortunately, that, you know, that, that lovely, uh, you know, that lovely courtship that they had comes to an end. But I, know, I thought those than, kids were going to make it. I know if those two kids cannot make it, you know, what chance do any of us have? Really? <laughs> but it was actually, you know, it, you know, I don't know if you watch or not, but it was actually kind of riveting to, um, to see it unfold because, you know, I think that the kind of the preconceived notion was that, you know, this was all for the TV cameras, blah, blah, blah. And you can kind of watch episode by episode, like their marriage falling apart. And it's like seeing like one of those like slow motion, like, like car, like crash test dummies, like car driving into a wall. And it's like, it's actually really sad, but it's kind of like interesting to watch. So, (laughs) but other than that, I haven't really watch much tv you know i hear you know everyone's always talking about like justified and the league and the this and the that and the uh what's the other one on fx i don't know there's a bunch on fx that everyone's trying to get me into i'm really hoping you know as we transition out of football into hoops i'll have a little more free time what what's on your dvr kyle because you know i am severely lacking in my tv game right now well, first of all, I, I haven't seen the Kardashians, but I got to say that the way that you describe it sounds like a really vapid version of My Blue Valentine, which that actually, I actually, I don't think there's a my in front of it, but just Blue Valentine. So that sounds like it's actually got potential, but uh, otherwise I, I have unfortunately stuck with uh, Jersey Shore. I, I remember we, we were midway through season four the last time you were on, and uh, season five, I, I got to tell you, they're back in Jersey, and it's just not the same, man. Season one, they caught lightning in a bottle, and I think they should have gone the uh, the real world route of rotating through cast. But I, See, I disagree, and I mean, I think the thing is, I think probably after by about that third uh, Jersey Shore season, uh, when they went back to 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 uh, the beach house for the first time, I just think they they caught lightning in a bottle. You're right. But at the same time, I think that there was something to that specific seven or eight people, whatever it was, if you want to include Angelina. Um, you know, the thing is, like, I just think that um, I just think that those specific people kind of in those specific circumstances just killed it. And like growing up on the East Coast, going to school with people from Long Island and from New Jersey, you know, a lot of people are like that. But a lot of people aren't that funny and aren't that interesting. So I think that, you know, they should have just, if they had been smart, and I guess you can't do this because when you're making money like they are, you can't just say no to a paycheck. But, you know, I, I think if you just bring in a new cast, it's like, you know, Saved by the Bell, like the second edition of it like after you know they had done the college years and all that like it's just not the same and like it may have the same kind of uh you know name on the marquee but it doesn't make it the same you know and so 
I, I do disagree that they should have stuck with, they should have gone with a new cast. I mean, I, I just, I don't know how you keep that show fresh. Maybe do a spinoff with only the guys or only the girl. I, actually, I, the girls would be painfully boring, I think. Painful. But, <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, I think that, uh, but I, I don't know, I don't know what they should have done, but I, I guess I could be talked into, um, you know, potentially, uh, you know, a, a different cast. But I just think that it was the right group at the right time. America was ready for it at that specific moment. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But it, it, it's it's hard to watch. I've tried to watch bits and pieces here and there, and it's just not the same. So This season, I feel like they're trying to cycle in. And I like the Say by the Bell analogy because it seems like uh, they, they lost Vinny, and they've been slowly introducing the situation's friend who's nicknamed the unit who (laughs) the unit, the unit is basically every stereotype I hold of the long Island, New Jersey, super tan, super ripped, just complete meathead a-hole. And I, I can see potential for this guy, but it's a little bit like Say by the Bell when they were supposed to have graduated and then Tori, the motorcycle riding chick, shows up and they're back for another senior year and it was a little strange, but it was still entertaining, but you didn't quite know how Tori fit into the equation. And as long as we're going Say by the Bell here, you bring up Angelina earlier, I'm guessing that this, uh, the whole situation would make Angelina Miss Bliss. Miss Bliss? <laughs> yeah, I guess it would. I guess that's a very good point. Yeah, no, that... Uh... That's a weird, like, when you catch, like, the TBS reruns at, like, 5.45 in the morning and Miss Bliss is just there, you're just like, wow, I, 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 don't, even, I, I don't even know how to quantify her role in that show. And, uh, and I, you know, the funny thing is, not to get too far off subject like I always do, but I'm pretty sure that they originally built the show around Miss Bliss. It was called, like, Good Morning Miss Bliss or something like that. But anyways, so it's weird to think about how these things happen, you know. Ironically, I'll bring it back to myself because that's what I do. Um, you know, I, I had written uh, uh, an article about, you know, the what if game of, uh, you know, what if Tim Tebow had committed to Alabama instead of Florida. And uh, it was this big, long, drawn out thing about, you know, how it would have affected national championships and Heisman trophies, whatever. So one of the guys on SB Nation did something very similar today. And, you know, it kind of brought my article back into the spotlight, like, you know, hey, uh, you know, this other writer did something similar. And so a lot of people tweeted me back and forth. But that's a great hypothetical TV what if. What if, uh, you know, they had continued to build the show around Miss Bliss? Is there any chance it goes beyond, like, 14 episodes? Because I don't think it does. But that's just my opinion. No, I completely agree that the Miss Bliss formula just wasn't working out. And that really, there's, it's like the butterfly effect, uh, which is a terrible movie, but it's an interesting theory of if you change one thing, oh, well, maybe it's not that terrible. I'll, <laughs> I'll recant a little bit. But, well, if I liked it, it must have gone. Exactly. But if you change one thing and it, and it uh, throws off the entire landscape, if you leave. Good morning, Miss Bliss, as is, without it turning into the Zach Morris show, essentially. The college bar scene in the 21st century completely changes because you don't have Dennis Haskins making appearances and doing shots with college kids. True. He, uh, when I was in college, he came to my university. I was going to say, you also don't have the Zach Morris with like the blonde wig 
and the oversized <laughs> cell phone has kind of become like a, a secretly go-to Halloween costume every once in a while. My buddy did it this year, and it was spectacular. That never happens either. I mean, it, it really does. You know, we're, we're joking, but it really had like a huge like pop culture kind of influence. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. That, that was the... Listen, if not only all that, it also gave us the Dustin Diamond sex tape, and I don't know where we are as a society without the Dustin Diamond sex tapes. So. Well, <laughs> anytime that you have a parody that's entitled Saved by the Smell, your culture is enriched immensely. And uh, the, the Zach Morris cell phone, I'm glad you bring that up, and, and that's the first thing I remember in terms of pop culture ever having an impact on me, because before that it was Transformers, G.I. Joe's, you know, and, and, and sports. And that was the first show I can remember watching when I first started to notice girls and that sort of thing. Yes. And talking with my older brother and being like, you're so lucky you get to go to high school because you just hang out in the hallway and talk on your giant cell phone and then go hang out at the Max afterwards. And my brother's like, that's, no. that's not high school. No, no, that wasn't for him. That, that was basically my high school in a nutshell. And, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, um, no, I don't know what else to say. I'm sorry. I think I took I think I took the conversation one step too far there, so I do apologize about that. Well, that's quite all right. But uh, to, to, to throw it back really quickly, we got the, the, the Jersey Shore, we got the Kardashians. Uh, two more I'm going to uh, throw out there really quickly for the, for the non-football watching season. Archer on FX. That's the one I was thinking of that everyone swears by. Highly recommended. The, the best 22 minutes of your week. And uh, if you get stars, I highly recommend Spartacus, which started back up. Although with a new Spartacus, because the original one died of uh, Hodgkin's disease, I believe, which is kind of a bummer. But if you like uh, gratuitous violence and gratuitous nudity and Roman culture, then, uh, well, I don't know how accurate this is on the Roman culture, but the rest of it's definitely there. So I recommend that one as well. Good. Yeah, no, I, I haven't had the chance. I've been doing been doing a lot of DVR, like, old TV shows that I've already watched, like Entourage and stuff like that. You're an Entourage guy, right? How bad was the last episode of Entourage, by the way? Now that we're <laughs> Entourage, Entourage was my precursor to Jersey Shore in the show that I really liked for its first few seasons, even though I knew it was kind of dumb. And then it got progressively worse with each season, but I was sticking with it to the bitter end. And... They should have just had a 25-minute episode that was just, uh, I, I don't know, the guy that plays E holding up a sign that said, just go watch the movie in two years. Because I, I felt like I was watching an infomercial for the inevitable Entourage movie. Nah, it was, it was really bad. That was the last TV show that I really got into, um, you know, and I was watching episode by episode, week by week, and it was just such a bummer to see it go out like that. But, you know... Whatever. I, I'll, you know, and the sad thing is, I already know that when that crappy movie does come out, I'm still going to spend the nine fifty or 11 bucks or whatever it is at my local theater. And I'm probably going to be disappointed when it, when it comes out. So. I agree. I agree. Un unless it's actually the uh, feature length of Medellin, which I think might be a little <laughs> bit less disastrous. I don't know, man. You know, I, I don't even know what to say. That It was so disappointing. I, like, literally blocked it out of my memory. I can't even remember what happened other than that Vince got on a plane and uh, got married after meeting a woman for, like, 36 hours. But anyways, I think this thing's run its full course. I'm sorry. I get tangential at the end of these things, and I go in a lot of different directions. I'm also going on, like, two and a half hours of sleep. So I think that's a good point to, to wrap it up. But, uh as we as we head out, Aaron, want to thank you once again. Where can uh, everybody check you out all over the net? 
Yeah, it's uh, AaronTorres-Sports.com. I kind of do my long... You know, I'm, I'm a much better writer than I am speaker on these podcasts. Like, I don't sound like an idiot in my writing like I just did for the last probably five minutes of this podcast. But AaronTorres-Sports.com. Cover college football as a whole at crystalballrun.com. Really fun website. Get to work with a lot of cool people. And my book, again, is called The Unlikeliest Champion. It's about UConn's national championship run last year. Uh, You can find out all the information at uconnbook.com. You can order uh, a copy there if you want, and I can go ahead and sign it for you. Otherwise, you can also get it over on Amazon. The Kindle version is now available for half the price of the paperback. So if you're tech savvy, you can get that too. But I appreciate you having me, Kyle. It was fun as always, man. And thank you very much for stopping by, and thank you for listening. Uh, This has been the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast with Aaron Torres. Until next time, this is Kyle Kensing saying take care.